The reading for today is from Daniel 5, 1 to 12. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because set an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Please be seated as you are. Look at you guys. You know what's coming next. Hi, I'm Brant. I'm one of the members of the team here at Christ City Church gathered in Kitsilano. And it's my joy this morning to bring you the word of God. And uh, even though the uh, verses 1 to 12 were just read in chapter 5, we're actually going to cover the whole chapter as we've been accustomed to doing in this series. And uh, it's a long chapter, so we won't read all of it, but we're going to read uh, obviously this first portion and then portions throughout. And uh, if you guys would actually, I'm just going to ask another quick word of prayer as we begin. Uh, Father, Lord, we come before you as needy people uh, who uh, need you to, to work. We need you to work by your spirit in our hearts to change us, to convict us of the truth of your word, and to cause us to be, uh, to be saved, Father, if we don't know Jesus, and if we do know Jesus, to become more obedient and faithful lovers and worshipers of you. And Lord, we just ask that you would do this through uh, your word this morning in our hearts, that we would be ready to hear it, and that you would do something much greater than is humanly possible. Amen. So have you ever been confronted with something that you should have known, not before you made the dumb decision that followed that, that lack of knowledge, but afterwards? I've been there plenty of times. I was actually just telling Fred and some of the guys here in our sound check some stories about my life that I won't tell all of you. They're too embarrassing. Because some of my most painfully funny memories in my life are of these kinds of situations. For example, 
that one time when I was 13 years old, and I thought it'd be really fun to take a little bit of fire and, and, and use it to, to light a fire, kindle a fire underneath my dad's uh, diesel tank that he had in our, in our property. Because, you know, the diesel spilled there, and if you lit that on fire, it would, you know, it'd be pretty fun. It'd be pretty cool. And my dad got a phone call from our neighbor uh, explaining, hey, you know, maybe you should uh, talk to your son because he's acting very foolishly. And I mean, thankfully, I didn't, I didn't blow anything up. I mean, praise the Lord for that. But I was sternly and appropriately reminded by my dad of all the things that I should have known. There's some arithmetic here. It's pretty basic. Uh, petroleum products plus fire underneath more petroleum product is not a recipe for fun. It's a recipe for disaster. And like I said, I've, I've had a lot of these moments. Maybe you've had a couple of them too. For a lot of us, there's this disconnect, you see, between our actions and what we know, right? So, so what we know to be true hasn't really worked through into our lives and changed how we live. A lot of us are like maybe Michael Scott. Do we have any Office fans in the room, right? We're, a lot of us are like Michael Scott, and we're kind of hiding from reality in the office, right? The blinds are closed. He's hiding from Pam or whoever it might be that he's offended this time and hoping that reality doesn't really work out the way that he knows it's probably going to. And so these are all, you know, small-scale, I think, illustrations of what I'm talking about. But Daniel 5 is actually really helpful for us because our passage is a warning not at a, a micro level, but at a macro level, calling us to align our actions with our knowledge in the most important category of all. How we live our lives before a sovereign and a holy God in this world. And the main point of chapter 5 is really this warning that ignoring God has these devastating consequences. So today, obviously, we're going to look at Daniel 5. And we're going to cover it as we get going in a few broad strokes. First, we're going to just take a little brief look at the context. You know, what's going on? What's led up to this moment? And then second, we're going to, to walk through the text to see the large contours of the way the story's been told. These stories in Daniel are very well composed. We want to we pay attention to that and see what the contours of the story are. And then lastly, we're going to look at four key application points from this text. Because I'm going to try and convince you that this isn't an, an obscure passage that has nothing to say to us today in Vancouver, but it has a lot to say to us today in Vancouver. So first then, just note this context briefly with me. We come to this text after that uplifting story in chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, the, the false worshiper, the prideful man, is confronted by God. And he's humbled, and it ends positively, doesn't it? Nebuchadnezzar ends this position of worshiping God. And on one hand, it would be easy for us to come to chapter 5 and kind of reset the clock back to zero and think this is its own contained unit, not really uh, masterfully joined together with chapter 4, but that would be wrong. It's important for us to recognize that these two chapters go together. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are two sides of the same coin. They're juxtaposed to show us two different responses that humanity makes to God's sovereignty over the kingdom of men. By the end of chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar, the humbled worshiper. At the end of chapter 5, we see Belshazzar, the humiliated and judged opponent of God. Both of them had this knowledge of God, but only one of them acted in accordance with it. 
So the other thing to notice by way of context, not just a literary structure here, but also this historic reality that a lot of time has gone past. 50 years have probably passed at this point as we come into this chapter. Big gap between chapters 4 and 5. So we can't imagine Daniel as a young man in Nebuchadnezzar's court anymore. We've got to think of him as an old man, likely in his 80s. Babylon was crumbling. We know that between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, there's been a couple of assassinations even. This, this empire is not doing good. And now Belshazzar, he's on the throne, but he's actually not really the true king. His father, Nabonidus, who is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So probably there's a, a grandfather relationship here between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. The middle guy, the ruling king, is Nabonidus, and he's out fighting battles to try and quell rebellion in the empire because things are not going well. So he's left Belshazzar on the throne to take care of things. And not only that, but Medo-Persia, the upcoming empire, is probably at the gate. They're they're coming up close. Babylon is on the verge of destruction and collapse. So we've got to keep these things in mind as we we go into the, the text. And, uh, and if you're ready, now we can, we can jump in. Let's look now, not at the context, but at the text itself. And like I said, it's a very well-crafted text. And like every well-crafted text or well-crafted story, there are certain key things that go along with that, right? We have a setting. We have this kind of rising tension or the problem that's introduced in a literature or a piece of literature. And then we have a conclusion. And for us this morning, the setting's in 1 to 4, in verses 1 to 4. And that kind of outlines for us the the characters and the place. And then a problem is introduced in verses 5 to 12. This is a passage we read this morning. And then the conclusion and the resolution to the problem are in verses uh, 13 to 31. The problem is solved. The tension is resolved. So as we jump in, let's look first together at the setting. How is this this setting instructing us here this morning? I'm just going to read verses 1 to 4 again. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and of silver, of iron, wood, and stone. Remember the context here. Babylon's in decline. Belshazzar's dad is away trying to fight it out with the pagans to kind of keep things from going bad. Persia's advancing. But here's Belshazzar having an opulent drinking party with his buddies. It's kind of the picture, I think, of this, this quintessential profligate king. And he's tasting the wine, and it's working into his system. And he thinks, you know what we should really do? You know, you servants, you go and you get those golden vessels from that paltry Jewish God. You go to to those vessels that were from Yahweh's temple. And we're going to show how utterly meaningless he was and how powerful we are as we enjoy these vessels together and we make much of ourselves. We're going to party it up. We're going to do it right. So you can imagine them, right? They're in their revelry, and they're, kind of, they're completely oblivious to the reality that they're trespassing on. It's frightening, really, that they're drinking from the vessels that were designed for the worship of the only holy and just God of the universe. And they're praising not him. They're praising these little gods that are nothing. It's this jarring scene. And if you were 
an exilic Israelite reading this, I think you'd be horrified. But because it's such a well-written story, you'd also be primed and ready for the other shoe to drop. And it does, doesn't it? Daniel has set the scene here in these first verses, but we know that God is close at hand, and that's exactly what's revealed. Look at the way the drama is introduced in the story in verses 5 and 6. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared, and they wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And if you've ever been deeply and truly terrified, maybe you can relate to this a little bit. The Aramaic, I love the Aramaic phrase here. It actually means that his knees kind of turned to jelly. And he lost, kind of lost this, this ability to stand and to make sense of what's up and down. Maybe you felt that way a little bit if you've been truly frightened or you've been scared of heights and you've been on the edge of something. But I think that part of the reason that Belshazzar was terrified was that he, uh, he kind of knew what was going on, didn't he? He ought to, knew, he ought to have known better. And in my life, I've been there. It's been especially terrifying for me, I think, to be caught in something. You know, so someone comes in, and, I, and I'm like, I'm doing something that's not good, and I'm caught in the action, and I, I really knew that I shouldn't have been doing it anyway. Right? But it, this is what's going on for Belshazzar. He's blowing money like nobody's business while the true king is away, trying to bring stability to the empire. And he's basically pulling a Nero. He's fiddling while Rome burns. And he isn't even the absolute monarch. And he's got his hand caught, as it were, right, in the cookie jar. But it's not his mom, it's not his dad who comes in and says, hey, Belshazzar, don't take those cookies. It's a disembodied hand writing a mysterious message of judgment from God on the candlelit wall. That's a pretty terrifying scene. So you can just hear his panic. In verse 7, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He's desperate. He wants to know what this means because he's scared. It's funny. He can only offer the third position because he's not even in the first position himself. It's revealing there. But this story at this point sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like earlier passages in Daniel? Daniel 2, maybe, and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You know, you call in all the Babylonian experts, and predictably they can't solve the mysteries of God. But there is someone, the queen, who remembers an old Hebrew man and the way that he had acted in years past in similar situations for, uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, this man's grandfather. And the queen steps in and she recommends that Daniel be called in in verse 11. Because, she says, and she understands, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. They were found in Daniel. And of course, this leads to the resolution of the conflict in the story, doesn't it? Daniel comes in. He, he walks in. The mystery is solved. And the meat or the real point of the story is revealed to us, the readers. This all happens broadly in verses 13 all the way to 31. But let's just look together first, though, at verses 15 and 16. And the way that Belshazzar explains to Daniel what's going on. It says to Daniel, Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. They could not show the interpretation of the matter. Well, that sounds very familiar. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. 
Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have chain, a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That's the king's explanation. But don't you love how Daniel answers the king in verse 17 after this? It's as if he totally recognizes that, that this king, Belshazzar, is a bit of a loser. He doesn't have a lot of time for him. He's not compassionate like he was for Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that in chapter 4? Oh, king, that this would be for somebody else, that it wouldn't be for you, this judgment. He doesn't say that here. He just tells him like it is. King, keep your gifts. Verse 17, and I'll tell you what the writing means. And that brings us to the very heart of the story, the central part of of the account in verses 18 to 28. And in this section, Daniel does three important things we have to recognize. One, he gives the king a bit of a history lesson in verses 18 to 21. Number two, he rebukes the king in verses 22 to 23 because of that history lesson that he should have known about. Number three, he interprets the writing on the wall and the judgment of God in verses 24 to 28. So first, the history lesson is this. Daniel recounts the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the way that God had exalted him He'd given him all these blessings. Look at verse 19. It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> and because of the greatness that he, <clears throat> God, had given him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. It's a pretty exalted place. But Daniel goes on to remind Belshazzar, not only was Nebuchadnezzar exalted because of his pride, he was also humbled to the point of responding correctly to the reality of God who alone rules the kingdom of men. Look at verses 20 to 21. But when his heart was lifted up, it's Nebuchadnezzar, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Thank you. That's the history lesson. Belshazzar has any brains, he can see where this is going, and I think he's going to be worried. It's pretty obvious where Daniel's heading. Daniel continues, and he says, And you, his son Belshazzar, in verse 22, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And it gets worse for Belshazzar. He wasn't just proud. He wasn't just arrogantly living his life contrary to what he knew to be true. He was a deeply offensive blasphemer. He'd defiled God's objects of worship and made light of them, thinking that, you know what, this God's nothing, and we don't care about him. So keep reading in verse 23. And Daniel points it out. He says, And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. I love this part. But the God in whose hand is your breath, 
And whose are all your ways? You have not honored. Snap. He's in trouble. Daniel called him out clearly. You sinned against an almighty God, and you ought to have known better, but you didn't. And then after the history lesson, the rebuke follows the judgment and the interpretation of the dream in verses 26 to 28. There's just three parts, so just kind of highlight it really simply. Daniel says, Mene, he interprets the, the, the symbol Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. And Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and the kingdom and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is a judgment of Almighty God revealed in a moment of revelry and sin against his profligate king. So what happens? When we read about the conclusion, we know that judgment comes swiftly. The conclusion of the narrative is in verses 29 to 31. Sure, we see on one hand Daniel's rewarded. That's pretty cool. Great for Daniel, except that it might not last more than a few hours because Darius the Mede entered the city that very night. We know historically that probably happened because he stopped the river that was flowing into the city when everybody else is not paying any attention and it came in underneath the gates and took the city without a fight. And somehow in that conflict and that transfer of power, Belshazzar's life is taken. Why did that happen? Because Belshazzar in his unbelief opted not to align his life with the truth that he knew and become a worshiper. And so his story ends in humiliation and judgment before the hand of God who alone rules the kingdom of men. And you know, there's even a juicy bit of irony here. Do you know what Belshazzar's name means? It means Bel has protected the kingship. Yeah, good luck with that. God will not be mocked. He alone, not Bel, not some pagan king, rules the kingdom of men. He alone is God, and all others fall prostrate before him, willingly worshiping or falling in judgment before him like Belshazzar. So this is a big passage, isn't it? There's a lot going on. It's kind of a, kind of a mind-boggling account, really. It seems strange to us. And, and maybe it's a case you've checked out long ago because you're just not convinced it can be helpful for us. But at this point, I do want to turn to some application and some, some instruction from this passage for us today. I, I think it has a lot to say for us in this theater on Burrard Street in Vancouver. The four things that I want to highlight from it are these. First, we can learn about faithfulness in exile from Daniel 5. So did you see in verse 11 the way that the queen mother tells Belshazzar that Daniel is known for something? He's known for having light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. He has a reputation. And why did he have that reputation? How did she know that? Because Daniel now, who is in his 80s, had been living in faithfulness with God for a long time. And his neighbors knew about it. And if you're going to be someone a little reluctant to see where I'm going here, you're going to try and head me off and say, Hey, Brent, uh, don't go comparing me with Daniel. Don't go calling me to the faithfulness that Daniel had. He's a prophet. What do I have? He had these gifts. What do I have? Well, I'm glad you asked. You have the things that Daniel literally dreamed of having. The Apostle Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. Peter wrote, concerning this salvation, that's the salvation that we have in this church building in Jesus, the prophets 
who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's you guys. You here, Christ City Church, gathered in Kitsilano, you had the salvation that the OT prophets, the Old Testament prophets, including Daniel, dreamed about. And those subsequent glories that follow from Jesus Christ, they're in you. Daniel had the shadow of the coming salvation of God. You have the substance of it. What this means is that you're not equipped less for faithfulness and witness than Daniel. You're actually equipped more than Daniel is. Do you realize that? So what can we learn then? If we're equipped for faithfulness, how can we learn from Daniel's faithfulness? We can learn this. Daniel lived faithfully because his heart was fixed, not on the kingdom of this world, but on the kingdom of the Messiah. His heart was fixed on that rock that smashed the feet of the statue in Daniel 2. You remember that? And the kingdom grew and expanded. His hope was set there, not on the kingdoms of this world. That's a true for us too. Now we have the hope of the Messiah more than he did because we're on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. But isn't it true that we feel the tension at this particular point? We know we belong to a kingdom that's eternal, that's unshakable, that's fixed, that belongs to God. But we live in Vancouver. And that can be hard sometimes, can't it? Because it's tempting to look at this beautiful city, to look at what we have to offer in this city, and want to go along with what the city offers. Isn't that true? I know it's true for me. We only moved here a few weeks ago, and it's been hard. Because we come in, and we see all this prosperity and beauty and wealth. And you've you got to sometimes ask them, did we make the right decision? You know, we're coming here to, to serve the Lord for his kingdom. Did we go left? We should have gone right. No, we made the right decision. Daniel 5 challenges us and teaches us that those things won't last. The things that this world offers, they can't satisfy. You know what Daniel saw in his lifetime? He saw kings topple. He saw nations fall. But he also saw revelations of God's kingdom enduring forever. So stay faithful. You're a member of the kingdom that Daniel only dreamed of. Filled with the spirit of the resurrected Christ. You're in fellowship with the triune God of the universe. Do your neighbors know it? Do they see someone, when they look at you, who, like Daniel, as the years go by, is on a trajectory of faithfulness, walking with God, living for God's kingdom in every way, showing that this world isn't all there is. There's more. If your neighbors had something terrifying happen to them, like Belshazzar had happened to him, would they call you? Have you been building into those relationships with them so that they know you? They know your compassion, your care, and your love. Have you been planting seeds of faithfulness that you hope to reap one day from the gospel? I think the exhortation for us from this passage for faithfulness is that we're to set ourselves up for a long faithfulness with a confident hope in an eternal kingdom. Daniel was in his 80s here, and we don't know what the long look, the long view of our lives will be and how God will use it for his glory. The second thing that we learn from this passage is actually a little different. It's about the nature of worship. This passage 
confronts us with the realities of true and false worship. Because Belshazzar, we saw, he defiled the vessels that were made for worship, right? The worship in the temple of God. But you and I, too, actually defile vessels of worship. You know why? Because you and I are vessels that were made for worship. That's who we are as human beings. Vessels made for worship of a holy God. But it might seem strange to think that way because our culture wants us to believe that, that there are religious people over here, on the one hand, who are crazy. And they worship things. And then there's all these sensible people over here who don't worship anybody. Right? That's, that's the lie. There's only a few people who worship and they're weird. That's not true. This passage reminds us that contrary to the thought out there in Vancouver, everyone on earth, everyone on the planet is a worshiper. Everyone lives toward what they love in an ultimate way. Either we will submit to God and be humble to love him and live fully for him, or we'll put an idol in his place and we'll love that and we'll live fully for it instead. Paul Tripp, talking about the same idea, says that every sinner is in some way a worship thief. You know why? You know why it's so easy for you to steal worship from God? It's because every human being is like this. Every human being is this, this cocked and loaded worship gun. It's got a hair trigger. All you got to do is point that thing in a direction and it's going to go off. And you'll worship there. Doesn't matter who you are, you're going to point yourself in a direction. You're going to worship that way. All you need to do to steal worship from God is just start walking. You know, and it's going to happen. For Belshazzar, we see what happened for him. He took the vessels of worship from the temple, right? And he's, he's probably worshiping his vanity a little bit, right? A lot. He's worshiping his pride. He's probably worshiping pleasure and just revelry. He's worshiping these gods that are no gods at all. And it's, it's horrible. It's defiling these objects of worship. And unless I'm mistaken, you're probably not quite in the same camp. You might not have stone idols unless someone does in the room, maybe under the seat. I'm going to pull it out and polish it off. I hope you don't do that. But you do worship because you do live for things in an ultimate way. And you hope that those things, whatever they are, will satisfy you and fulfill you. And you put them in the place where only God belongs. So how do we do that? I think that's even true for us here as Christians. That we're tempted, like we talked about in this city, to not just worship God. We're tempted to, to, to turn our worship somewhere else. We do it in a lot of ways. We do it certainly for sex, don't we? I mean, that's like, that's a huge thing in Vancouver. You know, we see it all around us. This is a free city, a city that celebrates our individuality and our ability to, to practice what we want, where we want. We hope, we think that maybe if I just had the sex that I want with the person or persons that I want, where and when I want, then I'd be satisfied. And I live my life in pursuit of that, hoping that it will fulfill me. But what about leisure? Can leisure become an idol? Leisure certainly can become an idol. I feel that. I love hiking. I love kayaking. I love being in the outdoors. I love good food. We have a lot of good food in Vancouver, don't we? You can live for eating at all the restaurants in Vancouver and drinking the latest brews at the latest place. And what about peace? Have you seen peace become an idol for you or in this city? You see that? There's a desperate search for peace, isn't there? A peace that comes maybe through some vague spirituality, through some uh, practice of some kind, maybe yoga or maybe smoking some weed on the beach. You know, it's like we're just looking for peace here. We want to have, have a relaxed life and feel satisfied. 
You can worship that. What about reputation? I struggle with this. It's easy for me to worship your opinion of me, to long for it, to live for it in some ultimate way. I think we can be prone to that, can't we? What about relationships? If only, if only I was in a relationship with that person, I'm going to bend my life to try and pursue that goal, then I'll be satisfied. If only I were married. If only I weren't married. Right? If only I was single again, then I'd be satisfied. <laughs> that's not true for me, that's for sure. <laughs> But you can see, you can see the tendency. You, all you got to do is point in a certain direction, and you're going to worship that way. Everything on this list, and everything that we could possibly think of outside of God, will fail to fulfill you. You've been made for worship, but you've plugged in the wrong coordinates again and again and again. And God's calling you. He's calling us to repent of our false worship, so we can find joy and fulfillment in living a life of worship for Him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness that his blood brings to us, so we can avoid the judgment that God meted out against Belshazzar. That's the invitation. That's the joy that we have here at Christ City. That's the hope. And this leads to the third lesson. We can learn about faithfulness, we can learn about worship, but we can learn about the nature of unbelief from this passage. Belshazzar's failure to worship God rightly was because of his unbelief. So what is unbelief? We kind of need a functioning definition, don't we? I think unbelief is this. Unbelief is knowing the truth, but not living in accordance with it. And we can see this unbelief worked out clearly with Belshazzar. Daniel rebukes him in verse 22. Look with me. <clears throat> and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar didn't respond rightly to the truth that he knew about God. He saw him at work, but he refused to humble himself and to respond to it. And to a greater or lesser extent, Belshazzar's unbelief is actually not different than ours in this room. Belshazzar failed to respond to specific historical truths, maybe, that's for sure, that, that we don't necessarily have in our history a couple of generations back. But I think this should convict us because as Christians here this morning in this room, we don't know less than Belshazzar. We know more than he did. You know, Fred told me this week, that was a, a great comment. He said, it's a dangerous thing, Brant, to go to church. You come to church and you hear things about God. You hear things about the truth of God. And you're going to be held account for how you respond to those things that you know. That's a hard truth. That's a hard truth. Jesus even says, to those to whom much is given, much will be required. If you're in this room hearing a message like this one today, you have a lot that's been given to you. Chris Wright, one of the commentators on this passage, he, he said something similar with these words. He said, I sometimes shiver to think of some apocalyptic video recording of all that we knew from the Bible, history, and experience played on a split screen alongside all that we do or don't do in spite of what we know. You and I who are born again, spirit-filled, followers of Jesus, suffer from unbelief, I think, a little more than we like to admit. Doesn't that ring true? It rings true for me. It's convicting to me. 
I want to encourage you, though, we have grace. We have forgiveness. We have love that we can be confident of that's not going away. But I want to remind you that that kindness and that love and that mercy from God that you guys enjoy in Jesus is meant to do something in you. It's meant to lead you to repentance and growth and pressing on, not giving up, not slowing down. So that's us, right? It teaches us about our own unbelief on one hand, but what about those who aren't followers of Jesus? I mean, God probably hasn't sent uh, Daniel or Daniel-like people to all the guys outside these doors, and they probably don't have a couple generations back these stories of incredible visions that are being revealed. So what knowledge do they have? Where's their unbelief come in? Are they failing to align their lives according to the truth that they know or not? They are failing, but their truth that they're called to align their lives to is less than yours. It's still there. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20 that those who don't follow Jesus are unbelieving for the same reasons that you and I and Belshazzar are. <coughs> because those who are unbelieving in the world know certain truths about God but refuse to respond to them correctly, just like us. Look at 120 with me, Romans 120. What did Paul say? Paul says they know this. This is what they know. For his, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul's point is that every human being on the planet is morally culpable for not responding to the knowledge of God that's all around them. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're here in this room and, and you aren't a follower of Jesus and you're thinking, no way. No way that's true. I know the created world around me it doesn't show me anything about God. All it shows me is the natural outworkings of some kind of an evolutionary process. That's all it shows me. You're wrong. Here's my contention. What if you're wrong? What if the emperor has no clothes to your worldview? Isn't it true that communities tend to grow into these echo chambers where we're just congratulating one another and, and looking at the same signs in the same way or the same evidence in the same way? And we have communities of bias that grow. What if we all are just maintaining together the wrong assumptions? Is that a possibility for you? What if you're so used to thinking that you're right, you're like you're, you're in a car, you're speeding down the highway at 100 kilometers an hour, and you're surrounded by cars that are all going the same direction at the same speed, and you just have lost objectivity. The Bible's claim is that God's work isn't hidden. And the deepest level of your programming, the Bible says, knows it. And you're culpable for your unbelief because you still refuse him. And you insist on worshiping other things anyway. One commentator wrote about the way that this kind of unbelief works out in this passage. He, he wrote about it this way. He said, Belshazzar is a model of what the human race in general tends to do. One of the original marks of our fallenness is our refusal to honor God. Knowing the truth about God, we choose to deny it. And the more we go on doing so, the more we come to believe our own lies. Until we reach the point where the truth itself is regarded as falsehood, while our own lies are paraded as absolute truths. Our Western culture has been systematically doing this for nearly two centuries now. We've banished God from what we choose to call the real world and have given our credence instead to all manner of myths, social, economic, scientific, political, and now also religious. 
Apart from Jesus, that's you. Paul and the Bible are calling you to believe that you aren't a neutral party. You are someone who has chosen to refuse knowledge of God that is all around you. He's displayed his character and his goodness and the things that he's made. His fingerprints are on you. So this leads us to the fourth thing that we learn from this passage. We learned about faithfulness, we learned about worship, we learned about unbelief. And lastly, unbelief leads us to talking about judgment. Because for us who are unbelieving, judgment from God, this is a hard truth this morning, judgment from God is the appropriate response. And the Bible is clear that this is the case because the Bible is clear that the worship that God made you for is the very best thing that you could possibly enjoy or live for. The Bible is clear that God, contrary to popular belief, he's not some megalomaniac who's out there trying to satiate his own pride. And that's why he wants you to worship him. No, far from it. He wants you to worship him because there's nothing better that you could possibly enjoy or do or give your life to. So if this God exists, and if he made you, and if you refuse to even acknowledge him or thank him or respond to your created purpose that he's given you, don't you see that when we pursue that sort of path, God is right to judge us like he judged Belshazzar? We knew and we refused. Just put yourself in God's shoes. Is that a really bad way to start an illustration? Put yourself in God's shoes? Well, I guess bear with me for a second. We'll see how this goes. Put yourself in God's shoes. When you refuse to worship God in favor of some other created thing, you're like a teenage kid whose dad in love and grace and mercy has given you a Ferrari. But you're like, you know what, dad? Screw you. I want my toy car. I'm going to sit here in the mud. I'm just going to like rumble around, you know? It's immature. It's stupid. It's paltry. But I think that's what we're talking about. Refusing something so much greater than what we have and said, no, God, I don't want that. I want what I have instead. And God's going to judge us for it. For Bel, for Belshazzar, it was a sudden judgment, wasn't it? And, and I don't know if I'm the only one who feels this way, but sudden judgment makes me a little uncomfortable. I wonder if it makes you uncomfortable too. But I would be irresponsible not to warn you that the sudden judgment that Belshazzar faced wasn't the only sudden judgment in the Bible. The Bible has sudden judgment as part of its story. It happened at the flood. It's happening in this story with with Belshazzar in Babylon. But Jesus said it's going to happen when he comes again too. And, you know, there's another thing that we don't think about often. Uh, We are frail people. When is God going to call in the cards? You don't know. I don't know. Judgment could be sudden for you because you might not live very long. So the million-dollar question for each of us is, if I'm so frail, and if God is so just to judge me, then where can I run? Where can I go for shelter? How can I avoid that? How can I flee from that? Where can I go? Let me tell you. The thing that protects us from this judgment is another judgment in Scripture that we haven't talked about yet this morning. The judgment of Jesus Christ on the cross where his blood was poured out and spilled and stained the ground where we ought to have been. Forgiveness from God are available to you and I today this morning because of Jesus and the judgment that he faced. On the cross, that's what happened. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way. He talks about what Jesus has done. and He says, 
For Christ also suffered once for sins. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus willingly went to his own execution on your behalf. That's the good news. That's the hope. So that you could be the people that Paul talks about in Romans 8 verse 1. You know what he says there? He says about the results of Jesus' sacrifice this way. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for you and I. We need this. We need this. Not only is there no condemnation, but we have so much more than that. We have love from God. We have acceptance before him. We're adopted as his children. We receive his grace and mercy and eternal joy in his presence. That's what we have. Praise God for it. Those words are sweet, I think, to each one of us here in this room who realize that we are those who have worshipped falsely in our unbelief and are rightly those who deserve God's judgment. But there's grace. There's hope. I want to share it with you. So in conclusion, Daniel 4 and 5 teach us a lot of things. But fundamentally, these two chapters are about worship. There are about this reality that before God, there stand only two kinds of people. There are those who have seen the truth about God and they've appropriately submitted their lives to him and worshipped him, like, like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. And there are those who are like Belshazzar, who've hardened their hearts in their unbelief and they receive God's judgment. Oh, my prayer for you this morning is that you would be in the former category through faith in Jesus. That's our hope. There's so much good news for us. The grace of Jesus Christ. Let's respond and worship together. And as we do so, I just ask that you bow in prayer with me. Oh, Father, we ask that you would uh, drive these truths deep into our hearts, Lord. That if we're, if we're on the fence, Lord, if we're those who are struggling to believe that, uh, that you are right to be worshipped, that you are right to demand to be worshipped, Lord, that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would see things rightly, that we would respond to your word and be changed. And Lord, for the rest of us, we're just feeling the, the weight of the fact that we don't live up to all the things that we know. Lord, help us to rejoice in Jesus and the grace that we have. Lord, and help us to, to out of gratitude and love for him, live with whole hearts for him. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.